that phrase right there, I get that phrase. Nobody really cares. Nobody cares. Uh, there's What's that saying? Uh, when you're 20 or something like that, you worry about what other people think. Mm -hmm. And then when you get to 40, you don't care what other people think. And then when you get to 60, you realize nobody even thought about you in the first place. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have started there. Exactly. Nobody cares because they're so worried about how they look. They're not paying attention to you. So go ahead and get on the dance floor and dance like you don't know how to dance. Hey, Warners, welcome to another episode of The Women Your Mother Warned You About, the podcast that makes business sexy again. I'm Gina Tremarco, master sales trainer and coach at Sales Gravy. And I'm Rachel Pitts, the singing lender, and freshly added to the master sales coaching team at Sales Gravy. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, oh my goodness, the journey we are on. We are so excited for yet another really cool episode with another cool speaker from Outbound Conference coming up in the middle of June in Atlanta. And uh, as always, we are excited to be sponsored by sales gravy. It's all about the gravy. Loved Victor. I don't know the whole Chicago thing that got me. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, you guys were like stuck in the, I grew up poor in Chicago story and I'm over <laughs> here like mm, not a lot to contribute right now. <laughs> I felt very much like the third, like I was actually there's when he was talking about being uh, living off of North in Chicago, I was like transported to this bar on North or like off of North. I was like sitting there the third wheel while you guys were like hitting it off. <laughs> we're like, I was poor. I was poor. Who was more poor? We were poor <laughs> growing up in Chicago. Uh, super cool having Victor on our show today. So many great nuggets. Um, I really love the nuggets at the end about there are going to be less salespeople out there because of our new virtual selling world. And what do you need to do to be a salesperson who is a cut above everybody else in this new environment? So that was my big takeaway was right, right near the end. What'd you think, Rachel? My biggest takeaway was right near the beginning. I was very Ooh. struck by Victor's description of how he made decisions early on in life. And just basically because of those are the decisions he, he had limited decisions that he could make. And, but I really liked it because I think sometimes we overthink our decisions when we really know we just have to make a move and, and move forward. Awesome. Well, there is so much goodness in this episode. I'm not even going to go into his bio because you can read it in the show notes because, hey, he is Victor Antonio. You can just go to the, Victor, the Victor, Victor Antonio. Go to victorantonio.com to learn more about him. And uh, hey, just a reminder, salesgravy.university, where you get all your resources to be that top salesperson who doesn't lose their job. So sit back and relax and enjoy this fun ride with the three of us, including Victor Antonio. Thank you so much for joining us, Victor. So happy to have you. Glad to be here. And it was great to be up there or down. Yeah, down there, over there last week that was pretty okay. cool uh, um have you you know it, it's okay if you haven't have you listened to the show at all not at all okay perfect 
I did want to taint myself before I came on this interview. So let's do this. Fantastic. You'll be fine. No worries. Don't be okay. afraid. We are raw, uh, but relevant. Uh, a little bit irreverent. Um, we swear. And we don't have to swear, but we don't have to hold back from it. Uh, I, you know, I feel I feel I'm like from Chicago. So it's like, ladies, go as hard as you want. It doesn't Ooh, even, go as hard like, as you want. Okay, so Gina's from Chicago and I've lived in Chicago for a hot second. So oh, we all have it. We're representing. Well, I saw that. I saw that. I grabbed that out of his bio and I'm like, how do, yeah. we, not, how do we not know this? Okay, let's yeah. just get started. Let's get started by welcoming the Victor Antonio to the women your mother warned you about. Welcome, Victor. Thank you for having me, ladies. I am looking forward to this conversation. I have no idea where it's going, but I'm looking forward to it. Even better. We promise it won't hurt. It won't. <laughs> hurts we, so good, though. It hurts so good. No man. Was that, was, that, was, that a, was that a Bon Jovi song? Who had the hurt so good? Come on, baby, make it hurt so good. I don't know if that was Bon Jovi, no, though. doesn't I, feel like it should. Yeah, okay. Are Hold we, on, I'll find out. Are we going to sing it outbound? Have we decided this, mm, Rachel? Not to drop that song in there. Drop that song into the replay. Maybe that could be like our walk-on song since we no. to do that now. <laughs> no, that's not my walk-on song. John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh, yes. oh right. By the way, I got, yes. I got a John Cougar Mellencamp story. What are you guys are ready for? But you have to be ready for it. Okay, we'll come. We'll come back to that. But let's talk yeah. about let's talk about you. Mm -hmm. And um, so I finally got to meet you in person at the sales gravy office. I was telling mm -hmm. Rachel this story. It was so funny because you walked in and you looked at me and you said, have we, have we met before? Have, have we met before? I said, standard, standard guideline, standard guideline. And I said, I'm a woman. Your mother warned you about that was my response to you. Yeah. And immediately my brain said, yeah, that was a long list. My mother warned me about that was a long <laughs> Well, that's oh, a perfect, so that is a perfect segue because we typically ask this question of women, but we're going to ask it a little bit differently of you. Do it. What do you mm -hmm. consider a woman your mother warned you about? What am I, what, uh, obviously loose women was one big one. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that was one big one. Loose women. Women. Yeah. That is old school. Uh, I mean, that's so, uh, yeah, I'm old like school, it. so but I, I'm trying to keep it we clean. Asked, we uh, asked. That, I mean, you know, uh, let me see what else. I think that was about it. I think my mother was always about, my mother was very like conservative in so many ways, right? So, you know, I, it's funny how as a guy, you look at your mo mother as a model of the type of woman you want, especially if you like your mother. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. my mother modeled that for me. And I think I, I wound up with a woman that lined up just like that. So we've been together now 35 years. So I must have done wow. well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you grew up, nice. you grew up in Chicago. In our city. Uh, we lived, uh, it was about a couple of miles from the Cabrini Green housing projects. Okay. So, you know, we're talking like really inner city, inner city, uh, North Avenue and Ashton to be exact. Oh, and yeah. so. Yeah, it was like, you know, food stamps. Back in the day, it was like, you know, late, late 60s, early 70s, you know, uh, food stamps, government cheese, powdered milk. My family came from Puerto Rico. My father had a third grade education. My mother had a fifth grade education. I was the, the youngest of seven. Uh, and we just kind of struggled through the whole thing. And so mom was always like, my mother was the greatest motivator in the world. She was, no joking. She was like, go. What did, what did she motivate you most to do? Uh, she threatened me. 
My mother motivated by pure fear. I mean, this is going to sound weird. Wait, 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 wait. Let me just explain this stuff. Because I say, I say that to people, and people don't realize that fear is one of the greatest motivators. And so my father worked at the Acme Frame Plating Company. Can't make that up if you're a roadrunner fan. Acme. Yeah. Acme, I, I for real. But it's true. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not making that up. I swear, okay. I'm not making that up. And so I remember me that. It was, yeah, it was a dirty job type of thing. You know, kind of, I call it a black collar job because it was like so grimy in there. Uh, and I went to see my father one time there. I'm like, Ooh. my brother went to work there because he dropped out of high school. So my mother said, uh, I fit, I was going through high school. Last year of high school, I told my mother to take a year off. She's, my mother said, well, if you take a year off, you got to work with your father in the factory, to which I said, mm, no, thank you. Uh, and my mother was all about that. Like, if you don't do this, this will happen. You know, she was always the if then this will happen. So I decided to go to college. It was because my mother, she was like, you got to go to college. And, and our family was like, go to school, get the education, get the J-O-B. You know what I mean? The American dream show. You know, that's that's interesting because I grew up in Chicago, Italian, and my mm -hmm. dad was 25 years older than my mother, and he may or may have not worked for the mob. We don't like to talk about it too yeah. much. Yeah. And and it was yes, the, you do. <laughs> and it was it was definitely the upbringing of the hustle um, of immigrant parents. And wow. my dad's attitude was, if you live under this roof, you will either work or you will go to school. And if you and if you live here under this roof working, you will pay rent. And I was like, this is a no brainer. Yeah. I'm going to college and yeah. I'll put my money there. Why would I put money into rent? Whereas my brother was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to go to college. I'll, I'll stay under the roof. But he wouldn't work. So my dad's like, you got two weeks. You get a job or you get out. 14 days later, he moved, he moved out and then he was miserable and begged to come home. And my dad's like, nope. And I'm like, okay, what do we need to do to get him back home? Because now my mother was blaming me for it. He's like, very familiar, he's, very familiar upbringing. By yeah, the way. he's got to get a job. So yeah. I got him a job in a hotel where I was working in college to put myself through college, got him a job as a bar back. He eventually became a bartender. He's been a career bartender ever since at O'Hare Airport. But that was the that was the life like you either went to school or you got a job because they wanted better for us. Right? I agree. Equals. I agree. A hundred percent. I mean, our parents were like that. They were just I mean, we were poor. We didn't have a lot of money. So everybody had to contribute something. Yeah. If you don't yeah. go to school, you get a job. And yeah. so my mother always wanted me to keep going to school because, you know, I was surrounded by the the drugs, the gangs, the yeah. violence. Yeah. Uh, my brother was in and out of the penitentiary so many times. I mean. The stuff he did was just incredible. Had family members who did things that were kind of incredible. And my mother was all like, stay away from that. Go to school. Stay away from that. Uh, how, how I got here, I have no idea. Well, that, I mean, that is really interesting because you can go one or two ways, right? And you you see these stories happen one, all the time. One incident, man. Just one incident just can send you off in a different direction. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Got, I, I got so many of those in my head that if it had just gone the other way or one yeah. degree off center. Yeah. It would have been different. And and look at you now. So you you earned a BS in electrical engineering mm -hmm. and an MBA. Correct. Uh, and, and you became a top sales executive and becoming president of global sales and marketing at a $420 million company. Correct. How did you how did you move into what you're doing today in mm -hmm. sales? And what would you well we'll just leave it at that. Well, you know, it I started out as, you know, so I I my mother said you gotta go to school, right? 
or else you got to go work with your father. So I'm, I remember sitting in my high school physics class and there was these bingo cards on the board, you know, on the, on, on the cork board, you know, different colleges you can go to. And I remember asking the teacher, then was Mr. Hodges say, Hey, is that a good school? And it was the Illinois Institute of Technology, like the MIT mm-hmm. for Illinois. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, great high school, great, great college. I said, yeah. Oh, okay. So I remember grabbing the bingo cart and filling out the information, sending it in to see if I can get a matriculation package. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I sent it over to Champaign-Urbana, which is another school. Mm-hmm. And I got both of them back says, Hey, we love your grades. Come on down, right? I'm like, oh, now I got to make a decision. And the way I made a decision was that the matriculation fee for IIT, where I went, was only 50 bucks. The other one was 250 bucks. We didn't have a lot of money. I had 50 bucks. I didn't have 250 bucks. Yeah. That's how I decided to go to college. Then I looked at the degrees, right? And they go, what? well, you got to sign up for a degree. True story. So I was like, uh, civil engineering. No, I don't want to be nice to people. I don't think I want to do that, right? <laughs> and then I looked at mechanical engineer. I can't make this up. Mechanical engineer, right? I go, I don't want to fix cars, right? I'm like, that's stupid. Who would want to fix cars? I don't want to do that. Go to college to learn how to fix cars. Then I saw aerospace engineer. And I'm like, Puerto Rican in outer space. That's not going to work. And then I saw electrical engineer and no pun intended, but the light bulb went off. I said, yeah, that I get. And that's how I actually decided to do an engineering degree. People always ask me, "Did you? were you pursuing your passion? Do you love what you do? Did you want to do it? No, we were broke. I needed to make money. I heard engineers make a lot of money, so I became an engineer. So fast forward, I'm in my yes. career. I'm in my career. Three years into my career, I graduate from college. Three years into my career, I'm like, I hate this. Like, you know, <laughs> I hate this. Like I'm coding, testing components. I'm like, I hate this, right? So then I went on what I call the, the, the existential journey of, who am I? Where do I belong? That type of thing, right? Oh, oh. So, so I remember I was reading every, you know, I was doing all kinds of research, but then I moved into uh, slowly into customer support engineering. Then I moved into application engineering, which is just designing systems. And then uh, we had our first child. And after a year, my wife said, you know, I'd really like to stay home and raise our child, right? So giving you the fast version to this. And I said, well, there's a sales position. They're looking for somebody who speaks Spanish, has a technical background and wants to go into sales. I'm like, I can make more money, but I'll be gone in like 50% of the time. To which he said, I don't see a problem with that. That bothered me. See ya. That bothered see me. Ya. <laughs> she was like too quick on that. We're like, yeah, later. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, right? Type of thing. And so that's how I got into sales and uh, had a great mentor. And from there, you know, I just moved up. I became, you know, uh, went from account manager to regional manager, director, then vice president of all of Latin America. Uh, we actually moved the family to Argentina for two years. Uh, we grew the business there from 14 to like $98 million, like in two years, two and a half years. And then uh, I became president of sales and marketing. And I was doing well. I mean, just to give you an idea how radical that decision, I walked away May 9th, 2001, 3.48 p.m. I just made my 20th anniversary. So May 9th, 2001, 3.48 p.m., I decided to walk away. Now, to understand the, the, the gravity of that decision, remember back in the hood, food stamps, government mm-hmm. cheese, powder milk, yeah, right? Yeah. Yep. Now, my base salary as president of the market is like 250000 20 years ago, right? Uh, and then uh, like average commission checks, about 300,000 stacked on top of that, plus stock options, all this, just great package. And I remember when I called the chairman, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm done. He said, what? He says, you lose everything. I go, I know. And I remember I walked away. And you know, when you walk away from corporate America, you're like, yeah, I'm out of here, right? That type of thing. You're like, you're like all victorious, yep. right? Yep. And then the next day I get up, and this new feeling hits me. What do you think that feeling was? Oh, uh oh. Yes, it was, it was, it was oh, 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 shit combined, right? Oh, like, what did I do? What did I do? But I knew I wanted to be a speaker slash trainer. I am like, you know, I the first time I saw Zig Ziglar, I was just like mesmerized. Like, you know, it's like, I swore to you, he was on stage. The light came through the roof. The Gregorian chant was in the background. I can hear the choir and I'm going, yeah, that's what I want to do. 
And I, it was always there in the back of my head. That's what I want to do. And so when I walked away, uh, I began my speaking career. And that, that was funny because I really like my first. So I left May. I started my career in June. In the first six months, I made a whopping, check this out, $17,000. And that was another, uh-oh, this ain't, ain't going to work at this rate. And then the next year, we did like 56000 And the biggest lesson, a third year, we were over 100000 We haven't looked back since. But what was interesting is that I discovered something about myself. And that is when you work for a company, and this is not, I, I want to highlight, this is not disparaging working for companies. I'm just saying this is an uh, aha moment for me. Here I am with an engineering degree, an MBA, have grown all these markets, but I start working for myself and I realize I don't know anything about marketing, right? I don't know anything about a lot of things because when you work for a company, this is your job, this is your function, right? And so I really had to learn how to, as you pointed out already, how to hustle, how to become a better marketer, how to really be more aggressive, you know, putting your brand out into the market. And it, that's how I got into sales training. Ooh, right there's the a lot story. there. You know what I, what I really, what I loved about your story, Victor, is that you, it doesn't sound like you hem and haw over important decisions that you have very obvious reasons to make a decision and not chew your fingernails about it for a long time and just go for it and see where it takes you. And I think there's a lot of people out there, myself included, that's like, should I do this? Which decision is the right one? Instead, just like motor through, because this is what you got to do right now. And it levels you mm -hmm. up to everything that you did, even though you didn't really necessarily want to be mm. a mechanical engineer or yeah. all those, or an electrical engineer, like it took you where you needed to go and you got a plenty of education, I'm sure. No so regrets. People always ask me that question about my degrees, you know, was it worth it? Cause you hear this, you hear this online uh, discussion uh, about whether you should get a college degree or not. Right. Cause he, Elon Musk said something about, he would hire people without a college degree. So we were going, why do I need a college degree? But if they read Elon Musk's fine print, he said, you better have something that's really tangible and really useful if you don't have a college degree. And to me, my college degree has paid off in spades. I mean, like, I can't even explain it to people. Even to this day, it's still paying itself off because uh, when you come from a technology background, mm -hmm right? Uh, and you have an MBA, which means you understand at least a little bit of the finance side of it. Uh, you just have a better view of what's going on. And so when I talk to like executive C-level people, I can have a nice conversation. When I talk to engineers, I pretty much know what they're talking about. So I don't get lost in conversations. And I think that's helped me greatly. I think that's huge. At Sales Gravy, I work with a lot of clients and I'm coaching some who came from an engineering background and and made the transition to sales and i mm -hmm. see that more often than i don't see it like it, mm -hmm. it was actually kind of surprising to me that they made the switch from the technical side to the sales side and and that's huge that's i mean when you have that kind of experience and then you have a personality to sell you can you can talk the language of the client and and make more money Oh, that was me. I, I'm like the ultimate capitalist. I am so money driven. It is not even funny. Do you know what I mean? And I tell that to people and they get all like, they get, they get all wiggy on me. Like I just, you know, cursed at their mother or something. I'm like, I just said money is good. Do you know what I mean? I like making money. And people are like, oh, you can't say that. And I think that's a stupid thing to even think that you can't say that. And I always get this one. This is the one I love, Victor, but you got to understand money won't buy you happiness. To which I say, shut up, but it'll buy you options, which is all I want in life is options. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And what I mean by that is that when you have yeah. options, you are actually happier. 
You want to buy the car cash or do you want to lease it? I don't know. I got options. I'll do whatever I want. And I think people need to understand that, that when you're offering it, I am a fan. Like I am just like, uh, I worship, I should say, Ayn Rand. I don't know if you know who Ayn Rand is. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I am like an Ayn Rand like disciple. When I came across Ayn Rand's writing, uh, I think she's just brilliant. I mean, just, just what a brain that woman had. Uh, and so I read the, the Atlas Shrug, the Fountainheads, and every other book, you know, Voice of Reason for the New Intellectual, all these different books. And Rand said something interesting. It was this very simple formula for never being taken advantage of. She says, as long as there's a value for value in the relationship, we're good. That was her thing, value for value. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that, that if I'm providing you value, let's say in, in the form of training, and you're paying me, that's a value for value situation, right? You want my training and I want your money. Quid pro quo in the best way. Right. I think it becomes not good when you don't provide value and you charge people more than you should be charging them. And there is no equal value. So that's why when I say I like money, I'm like, I'm, I'm coin operated, man, put a <laughs> coin right there. I start doing things, right? That type of thing. <laughs> people are like, oh, you can't say that. I'm like, yes, you can. Heck yeah. and so I'm, I'm why just, do they say, why do they say you can't say that though? It's, I, I it's get what you're saying. Your, it's too in your face and it's like too in your face because they, they're thinking I'm saying that, remember, what did the Bible say? It's, it's the love of money is the root of all evil, right? Okay. Emphasis on the word of love. If you love money more than what you care about delivering value, of course it's evil. We get right. that, right? But that's their that's their mindset that making money is evil. For some reason, people find, and this is something that Rand really brought to my attention, people find some type of solace, almost a pride, if you will, in being poor and disenfranchised. Now, I came from poor and disenfranchised. I'm just telling you, it ain't fun over there. No. There's no fun over there. No, Zero fun. And Zero. so I think people think it's like, you know, we, we, if you think about, you know, today's environment, let me, let me just go off the rails here for a second. This is really because we always demonize the rich, right? And I get irritated when people demonize the rich. I really do. Yeah. Because people say, well, they should pay their fair share. I remember that political, you know, statement being made. I'm like, uh, I think they pay more than their fair share. <laughs> so the, the, what is it? The top 1% pay 10% of all the taxes and the top 10% pay about 70% of the taxes. I mean, just think about that. That means one out of 10 people is paying the majority of the taxes. Mm -hmm. So when you say we're not taxing people enough, I don't think that's right. I think I we just, I think we're spending too much and I'll just leave it at that. It's not so I like when people make money. Hey, Warners, like, thanks you so guys much come for listening to, to this episode. Just a million dollar if you yacht, haven't already hopped you. over to I iTunes to give I us a review, I might not have a million dollar yacht, but I would Please do Bam. so. Wait, yes, go, I'm go actually begging. Because you know what? Yeah, if you give us a review, it takes like 30 seconds. It really helps more people find what we have to say. And if you're listening to this right now, you think what we have to say is valuable. So let's spread the love. Other people say they're making too much money. That is envy. Now back to Because there's nothing stopping you. And I'm the guy that can talk about it, you know, because I guess I'm the person of color that can talk about it, right? Because all of a sudden, you know, I've never felt disenfranchised. Sorry. That's why I hate when they say, you know, people of color really have it hard. Shut up. Go work your ass off and watch how you'll make money. Just work your ass off. There was nobody ever. There was no man stopping me. But, I, and I, but I'm sure that there's somebody that would fight you on that. Somebody of color as yourself. Sure. Actually, Rachel and I almost broke up last year over oh, so over these. I know over these conversations because oh. we knew a woman who had been on our show who actually this is how it all started. I don't know if you remember Rachel, but somebody went I on during um, I think it was during Black Lives Matter and, and said, I'm a black woman. And I've never felt oppressed. And she got such a backlash about it and she's extremely successful and there was a ton of backlash 
Yeah. Well, the, well, the thing is, for it. I, but 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 I really believe I I truly believe that there's more people than not who know that's reality that they're not. You know what I mean? I think there's a small group of people who get on social media and push this narrative. But I like to think that the majority of Americans, this in spite of their color get the fact that there's opportunities around us. I mean, we have more black billionaires and millionaires than we've ever had before. Right? I can go down the list. Who makes more money in the U.S.? Asians. Oh, my God. Aren't these the same people we threw in internment camps during World War II? Yeah. Guess what? They didn't care. They still moved up. They're making more money than white people. What's the what's the poorest majority in the United States? In terms of number, not percentage, what is the poorest majority in the United States? Mm-hmm. What race? I'm asking you the question. What race is the poorest? Don't know. Latin? White. Whites really? are the largest, poorest population in the wow. United States. You think about it because there's more of you, if I can oh, put it that well, way, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, but they always give you a percentage of, here's what they do. They add up Hispanics, Blacks, Asians, others, and everything, and they clump them together. They say, oh, these minorities, they use more welfare than everybody else. No, 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 no. Whites use more welfare than anybody else. Wow. And so I'm always Here's about, some... let's talk about the white problems we have in here. We got white issues going on here. There's a lot of poor white people. You know, and I and I think as soon as we transcend race, that's what I think I love living. Because I, I, in my mind, I transcend race. It doesn't matter. Do you think part of your hustle comes from, and this, this isn't race at all, do you think part of your hustle comes from having grow up, grown up poor and, and not wanting that because that's how I feel about myself and I'm white. I would agree. But we didn't, we didn't grow up with a lot and we had to hustle to have whatever we wanted, which made me quite like putting myself through college. My first year of college could not, couldn't even get a loan Mm -hmm. because my father who was way older and not working and on disability because he owned his house free and clear. mm, you got it good. You can't get a loan. Yeah. Let I, alone let alone a single grant of any kind. I had to I had to get <laughs> I had to get clever. So into uh, my sophomore year, mm. I'm like, all right, you want to play this game? Fine, I'll play this game. I will cry poor white girl and huh. I claimed myself independent from my family. I, I, I like legally separated as a non-dependent of my dad on his taxes. I changed my address to a friend's house Mm -hmm. and said, I am independent. And then the money came pouring in. Yeah. I I, I remember uh, we were so poor. I got every grant you can imagine. I graduated college owing the equivalent of one year's worth of a college. You know what I mean? Because we yeah. were, I was just getting grants left and right. I'd sign up for something. You got it. Because we had nothing. There was nothing to go after. There was no assets. My parents yeah. never even drove a car. Never even owned a car. We used to always take the, the Chicago Transit bus. Yeah. And so we were like, yeah, we were down there. So, but but I think the the, the hustle comes. It's it's it doesn't matter what race is. Is that you got a certain upbringing? You realize nobody's going to make it happen for you. You might want to yeah. make this happen for yourself. It's. Yeah. I mean, we live in. I. It, I don't even think. I know we live in one of the greatest countries in the world. Because I've traveled international and I've been around the world, so to speak. I'm not saying we're better. I'm just saying this is not a bad place to be. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And there's so much opportunity with the internet that just compared to 10 years ago, there's just there's absolutely no reason somebody can't start a business and be successful if they really stick to it. I think it's that that drive that people are lacking matter what the race, like you can be anything. I, I love your point. And I'm glad you brought it up because very few people bring that up. So I love your point because 
it's the internet. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's no discriminatory barriers on the internet. So, I mean, you can make so much money online and nobody else know who you are. I mean, the opportunities to make so much money are all around us if we see them. Your point is well taken. Excellent point. Yeah, 100%. And I think that people, there is, as you said, Victor, a, a certain like comfort of like, the scarcity mentality. And I've been around it a lot from my previous, um, my first career in show business. A lot of artists, they live in this poverty mentality and they forget that it's called show business and (laughs) they will, (laughs) especially now I'm like entering into another business that has to do with show business. I'm dealing with these people and I'm like, how do you not call me back? Like, I just treat them the same as the CEO I'm trying to reach. Like, because mm-hmm. the artists, these artsy fartsy people don't call you back. <laughs> like after literally four or five voicemails and texts and different, you know, pretending like I'm prospecting these people, I'm like, how do you not call me back? No wonder you have a scarcity mentality. You got to call people back when opportunity is like, knock, knock, knock. I'd like to pay you. Call me yeah. back somehow I, and we're both artists because we both have artists background. I used to own an improv comedy theater and I'm probably the most capitalistic theatrical person you'll ever meet. Um, By the way, I did, I did improv uh, for like two months to improve my speaking career. Yeah, I did. I loved it. Oh, we should do it at outbound. Yeah. That's I'm doing something with Jeb. I think we're going to improv something like an hour or something like that. I said, sure, man, whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll go for it. I don't even care. Well, we'll pull you on to our live stream. We'll, I'm there for you. We'll improvise with you. I'm there for you. <laughs> well, I mean, so we're both we're, we're both from Chicago, city of of improv. Um, but mm-hmm. when I when I was running the theater, right, the 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 scarcity mindset of some of the performers, but more so people in the improv world who have been using improv in business, like I do, mm-hmm. I literally would like. I don't want to say have fights with, but just say disagreements that maybe I'm not their favorite person in the world. Mm-hmm. They would go out and sell training <clears throat> for pennies, yeah. right? Using, we're going to use improv and leadership and we're going to charge $200 for this training session. I'm like, are you effing crazy? Yeah. Stop it. You are hurting me every time you sell this for nothing. Well, it's it's the art form. We're not here to like t- charge a ton of money. Well, I am. Yeah. I am. I've dealt with enough artists with their artist mentality about I'm not in it for the money. I'm like, yeah, you got to pay that light bill, don't you? you, got, you know, it's funny. I mean, we're not in the but yeah, I guess we need money to pay some bills here. And I, I, I find it unfortunate, but, but it's the nature of the business, right? Creative people just want to create. They don't want to administrate. And I think that's the tough part. I think that's why great artists who can team up with a great manager is always a one-two combination because the manager will get the money, so to speak. Well, at the end of the day, too, there are creatives out there who, come on, let's be real here. Rachel, you tell me. I I felt the same way studying at Second City. I'm like, I hope Lauren Michaels discovers me and I'm on Saturday Night Live and then I'll get movie deals and I'm going to make a lot of money. Of course I wanted that. Sure. So, so as an artist, do you really want to be starving? No. As a salesperson, do you really want no. to be starving? No. No, no, I get no. it. And by the way, my, you, do you guys know I had a TV show? I saw that on your I website. Saw that. My own reality show I was the host and they found me online. They found, literally found one of my videos online. One of those stories. And they're like, Hey, would you like to come to Hollywood and do a screen test? We got this. I remember when they called me and I was like checking into a hotel for an event 
and they're like, hey, calling from Hollywood. Would you like to come in? We got to do a screen test. We're considering hosts. I'm like, what? I, I even told the guy, I said, just, just call me back in 10 minutes when I get into my room. He's like, oh, okay. And I remember they pitched me the whole idea. And I went out there, did the screen test, got the part, did a whole season. Uh, and I learned a lot about Hollywood. And being in front of the camera, I think it's really fascinating business. You meet you meet some interesting people, but mm-hmm. it's so but it's so serendipity when it comes yeah. to whether you'll be picked up or not, yep. or or your next paycheck. Yeah, there's no control. There 100%. is one thing that you can control, though, Victor, and that is that opportunity dances with those that are already on the dance floor. Ooh, and the reason oh. they found you is because you are out there putting your content out there. And that's the thing that even starving artists, it's th- there's actually more opportunity now to be successful with YouTube. Yeah. And you, yeah. But it's not any different of how much work and effort that has to be put into getting there. And I just finished reading um, Outliers. I forget the, the oh, well, Malcolm Gladwell. Outliers. Malcolm, I'm, yeah. I'm a Malcolm Gladwell. So fan. so good. Outlier is one of the best yeah. business books I've ever read, and I think the best business book when it comes to understanding. Again, I hate to overuse the word serendipity of success. Yeah, yeah, and I, the the story about the Beatles that he talks about that they they were so they were so great. But one of the reasons they were so great is because they were hired in this strip club for like a couple of years that they played every single night for hours and hours. They so were actually they horrible. This, <laughs> yeah, they were horrible at first, but they just kept going and got those uh, 10,000 hours in faster than most. Uh, so it's just a, it is, it's a fantastic book on a lot of levels. It's kind of like you and I, Rachel, our third season with this podcast. We know that we are going to be discovered one day. One day. I One mean, day. we've already been discovered by Jeb. I mean, we're. And by, we're by the way, your your point is well taken on the uh, you know whatever that beautiful line you used about being on the dance floor. That was really really good. The uh, because. <laughs> The one of the, what happened to me was that remember the whole thing about marketing? I only made like $17,000 that one year, that half year. And then I said, I got to learn how to market. And I remember reading Gary Vaynerchuk's book, Crush It, mm-hmm. around 2008, 2009, I think. And then I just started cranking videos like a madman. So I think on, on YouTube right now, we have about maybe 15, 1600 videos. And that's not the paid content, that's just the free stuff. And so that's how they found me. Rachel was one of those yeah. videos that they saw online and go, oh, who is this guy? And so I've been cranking video for quite a long time. So that's given me a lot of momentum. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people that are afraid of video. It's clear that video sells, y'all. So Hello. just go out there and start doing it. Let it suck. Let it suck at first. Oh. Keep going. And then it gets better. Like my video stuff sucked in the beginning. Oh, you should wait. But you should see my, by the way, I posted my first. This is embarrassing, but you like, if you want to have some fun, go look at it. So my first Toastmaster speech. My first Toastmaster speech. If you type in Victor Antonio, first Toastmaster speech, I actually had hair back then. And I looked I looked like one of the band members of the time uh, with the curly lock. You know, it's just amazing. And so I tell people, go watch that video because I sucked, as you pointed out. And so people go, man, and I've had, I've had emails. I don't know how to take this. People go, man, you really sucked back then. Look where you're at today. I'm like, I don't know how to take that. I think that I think that's a compliment. That yeah, you really so maybe the, I, the other one I get is like seeing how bad you were makes gives me confidence that I can be successful. <laughs> well, the the thing about it is, so let's say there's somebody out there listening right now that would like yeah, to yeah. be like you, Victor, and wants to be a, a professional speaker. Yep. Zero zero experience. Toastmasters sure. is a good way to, place to start. Yep. But you're allowed to suck at something new. People are so afraid to suck at something. Like yeah. they think that they're going to, and I d- deal with this with my child and I have to point out, like we just learned this 
30 seconds ago. You're yeah. going to suck at it for now. Yeah. <laughs> like until What's the worst that's going to happen? You know what I mean? What's the worst? I, I, I often use that argument. What's the worst that's going to happen? Spend a little money, look a little stupid. I said, you know, and then, you know, I wish somebody would have told me this in high school. I said, look, why don't you just do everything you want to do anyway and look as stupid as you want to do? Because in five or 10 years, you'll never see these people ever again in your life. So what does it matter? Yeah. You know what I mean? Let's take it even a further step. When I, when I, when I was teaching improv on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. um, both, both corporately and at our theater, there was a lot of nervousness around, you know, walking into an improv class. And so Mm -hmm. what I would always say is a, this is a safe space. B, if you think you look stupid, look to the person next to you because they look stupid. And the bottom line is no one's paying attention to you. Nobody just cares. Just that phrase. I, I, that phrase right there, I get that phrase. You know, it's a real want to get that nobody really cares. Nobody cares. Uh, there's what's that saying? Uh, when you're when you're 20 or something like that, you worry about what other people think. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to 40, you don't care what other people think. And then when you mm-hmm. get to 60, you realize nobody even thought about you in the first place. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have started there. Exactly. Nobody cares because they're so worried about how they look. They're not paying attention to you. So go ahead and get on the dance floor and dance like you don't know how to dance. Yeah. I, I used to call it the nightclub effect. You know, everybody's because everybody primps themselves up to go to a club or something. Right. And they're not looking really at other people. They're worried about how other people look at them. And it's really a strain because if everybody's looking at themselves, nobody's really looking at other people. I just thought that was interesting from a from a mindset standpoint. Okay, now I need to know what nightclubs you hung out in in Chicago. There was one called the Medusa. (laughs) Yes. And the Medusa was by uh, it was by I think it was by uh, what was that street? But anyway, it was it was not on Rush Street, which everybody knew. But the Medusa was a three or four level. Uh, it was um, wasn't it in the Limestone Building? It was um, no, it was like an old mansion. I know, I know where that's at. I I used to go at the Limestone Building at that time. It was the one I went to was called Janelle's at the time. But the Medusa was where all the freaks hung out. So it opened at twelve oh, midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was multi-level. And depending on which level you went to, it just got a little freakier and freakier. And it was great. I mean, we walk out of there like seven or eight in the morning. You know what I mean? Go get some breakfast over at the hustle. What is it? The what, the huddle house? The huddle uh-huh. house. Mm-hmm. And get, and then just finally get home and get yelled at by my parents. Exactly. Yeah. So, sorry, I had to go off on that tangent. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, there. I'm, there with you. I'm there with you. Hey, I'm, I'm curious. Do you have, and I know you you um, teach courses for us at Sales Gravy, and there's a lot of rave reviews views about you from a lot of the clients that I work with that they just love you and they always come into a class and I'm like, I just took Victor Antonio's I'm like enough with this Victor already no I'm kidding Look at that guy they they love you is That's there cool. is there something specific that you think is your sweet spot when it comes to sales training there's two things I uh the first thing I you know I I have this course called blocking objections mm-hmm I am telling people that if you just wake me, if you slap me, wake me up in the middle of the night and said, what's the one course you said everybody must take? It's the blocking objections course, because it's all about how do you reduce buyer resistance by raising the objections first. And I walked through this, I wrote a book around it and there's this whole strategy around it. And if you just implement that one strategy, you will feel the difference already. So that's the one thing. The other one is that I wrote a book called Sales Ex Machina, which I believe was the first book on how artificial intelligence is changing the world of selling. So my technology, my nerdy side came out on that. I said, yeah, let's go do this AI stuff. So I think those two things are, I think people should look at. One would help you with presentations. 
and mm-hmm. really reducing resistance. And the other one just keeps you up to date what's happening with technology. That would be the one-two punch. Okay. What is happening with technology? What do you foresee? Well, right now, I mean, what's going to happen is that the number of B2B sellers are going to re- has been steadily declining and it will. A lot of these roles will now be absorbed within the actual companies, SDRs, BDRs, whatever you want to call them, inside salespeople. Uh, this pandemic, I mean, we were on, the, on, like if we were on a 45 tra- degree trajectory to get to virtual selling, uh, the pandemic just made it a 90 degree turn. Let's get to it. But we've been doing it for a while anyway. And so what's happening now is, and I'll give an example. I work with a large energy company, uh, batteries for like towers, cell sites and stuff like that. And their sales during the pandemic went down 10% because their salespeople weren't traveling. This, these are, this is a B2B complex sale. Went down 10%, but he said, but Victor, our costs are through the floor, which means our profit margins are even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think a lot of companies are discovering that they don't, they can do this. And the best analogy I can give you going back to my engineering days is I remember I took a metallurgy class and this is a real simple example. The, the, the professor gave us a wire, like, you know, like a coat hanger wire. And he said, bend it. So you bend it. Right. And then he says, okay, great. He says, now make it straight again, get the kink out. Well, you couldn't, if you've ever bent a wire, you can't get the kink out because the bonds realign themselves and they're that much stronger. I think the pandemic bent the hanger. Mm. And then now we will never go back to that straight hanger again. So now there's a kink in the hanger. There's a kink in our way of thinking for the better. I think that virtual selling is a reality and it's, 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 it's validated. It yeah. can be done. Yeah. Car companies like for now we buy cars. Now we're having them delivered companies like Vroom deliver them or you go to Carvana. Yeah. Uh, Friends who do pool companies. I got friends in the pool company business who are just, I mean, just selling like you wouldn't believe. They're basically having these types of calls, designing a pool with some virtual software, doing it all online. Window company I work with, you don't even have to go see the windows. They'll show it to you. They'll do a whole full demo online. And so all this stuff is happening. It's exciting, actually, that now this this virtual selling piece is a reality. And what what you're going to see is the number of salespeople be reduced because of that. Hmm. Well, and it's such a time saver what we've discovered as a result of the pandemic. I I know that even last week we had this gas shortage thing going on in our area. And I mean, it just was so easy to go, you know what, because of this gas shortage, let's just put the meeting back online. No problem. Just like the pandemic. And and everybody likes it better because actually I can smush a whole lot more virtual. Oh my gosh. I have to drive six hours tomorrow for for a a sales training. And I'm like, I want to shoot myself. I'm like, all right, well, what calls can I schedule while I drive? This is six hours I'm losing. In the past, I'd be like, yay, road trip. Now I'm like, oh man. I've had the same feeling. It's like our level of our our tolerance level for having to deal with society, the public, has gone down, right? Like I don't want to go. I don't want to deal with people. I don't even want to see people. You know. So I just did a trip to Phoenix. And I'm like, ah, you know, I'm just like, ah, you know, like I don't want to be around people. It was funny. I was so irritable, and I go, why am I irritable? I haven't traveled for three months. I should not be irritable. Hey, I've uh, two more questions, and then our signature questions, and we got to yeah. wrap up with you. Right. You just made this comment about we're going to have less salespeople. Yep. So that question there, less salespeople. If, so if you're one of the the remaining salespeople out there, what advice can you give them for stepping up their game because jobs are being eliminated? The here's the all encompassing answer for both B two B and B two C, and that is salespeople have to learn that. First of all, your product's not unique. Your service is not unique. Your company's not unique. In fact, I don't even think you're unique. 
Let's just start out with that. Let's level the playing field. And let's, let's say we understand all that. Now let's go over to the buyer side. The buyers on the buyer side are confused because there's so much content on the internet. What they're looking for are, are salespeople who can curate. And that's, I love that word, mm-hmm. can curate the content for them. And it can, it's almost like, you know, we talked about trusted advisor, consultative, selling, all that. I get all that. But I just need somebody to help me make a buying decision. Just clear the field for me and then explain why they're clearing the field, right? You just can't say, oh, buy this because it's the best. No, here's why. Look at your options and really work with something. That's what they're looking for. If you sell from that perspective where you become a, a subject matter expert or a domain expert, then these are the people who are always going to have jobs, especially in fields that like B2B, B2C, whatever it be. It doesn't even matter. Let me go to the extremes. If you know technology and you understand how, I don't know, 5G works and network design, systems design, and you have a great IT background and platform background, you're always going to have a job. That's a complex sale. But I would also argue that even in the the B2C space, let's say pools. You would think pools. How can I differentiate myself in pools? Well, there's so many ways. There's so many ways you can design a pool that what people want is for you to grab them mentally by the hand and just walk them through but also have three things. One, be a, a subject matter expert. Two, have their point of view, like take their point of view, really try to understand what they're going through. And the third aspect is, is have their best interest in mind. And what I mean by that, I like somebody who, who's actually looking out for my pocket, you know, who will say something like this, look, Victor, there's three options here. This one's expensive. If you're thinking long-term, that might be a good chance. But based on what you've told me, let's look at these two and let's narrow it down. And then, because this is what you can afford now, this is what you can't afford. I want those direct conversations. I want somebody to curate the content for me and have some great direct conversations. Awesome. That is awesome advice. Um, Next question. What can people expect from you at Outbound? I don't know. I'm a pretty sedate speaker, very quiet, very under key, you know, very low (laughs) low key when it comes to speaking. Uh, Look, Outbound is good. It, it was great two years ago, you know, when I was there live. I mean, you just see all these different speakers. I think what's going to be interesting, this is what I'm looking forward to, is that. So you got uh, a bigger portfolio of speakers, and we're doing it virtual as well. The diversity is just incredible already. But I, I'm dying to see what everybody has learned over the last year, year and a half, and what they're going to present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to be like, yeah, oh, what do you got? You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm all about learning. I mean, I have, I, I don't know anything yet. You know what I mean? But I love watching, especially if they're great speakers with great content. Like, I guarantee you, Jeb's going to come heavy handed. I know that. And I mean that in a positive way. Guarantee you, Mike Hunter's, uh, uh, Mark Hunter's going to come with mindset thing. He's going to give it, we're going to push him to give us something, right? Anthony Arena, I just, that guy, I don't know. That guy's wild card. He's going to come up with something crazy and good. I like him, man. He, he, right now, when you look at the B2B space, in terms of strategic thinkers, I think Anthony, I'll just say he's one of the best now, but I can't really think of anybody else. So I don't want to call him the best because then his head might get bigger. So I'll just say he's one of the best, just to kind of normalize him a little bit. But I mean, just that right there. And then you got like a guy like James Muir. Uh, Colleen France is one of my favorite you know, speakers. So it'll be interesting to see what they come with. That's why I'm excited about Outbound. It's been exciting interviewing speakers from uh-huh. Outbound on our show um, for weeks now because we've had a lot of conversations around what they've learned in right. the past year. So, so to your point, that's going to be pretty exciting. We're excited to mm-hmm. see you at Outbound, hang out with you. You'll hopefully recognize us and talk to us. That would be super cool. Uh, 
<laughs> he has to talk to us. He has we're, to. We're, we're, we're speakers. We're exactly. like, oh, we're right. in the club. We're in the speakers? He at least has to talk. All right. All right. I'll talk to you. Fine. All right. Okay. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be, we'll dress cute. So you it'll make it worth your while. Yeah. All we'll right. be cute. We'll be cute. Um, if My people, mother warned me about women like you. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so she I had did. To, I had yeah, to work she, that in. You had to. Very good. Uh, where can people reach out to you to learn more about your connect with you? Victor Antonio. Just type in Victor. I'm that I'm that famous. That guy. That, yeah, I'm that guy. No. Kind huge. VictorAntonio.com. Yeah. There we go. Go go check out VictorAntonio.com to learn more about Victor. And we've got one more minute with you. We got a couple signature questions. I think you actually answered one of the questions earlier of like you hey, wish yep. somebody would have told you. you we'll know. ask it yeah. again. All right. So Rachel, take it. So Victor, quickly, how would you define the word sexy? Sexy. To me, sexy is that it's it's quiet and subtle. That's how I like it. Do you know what I mean? It's that subtle. I like classy sexiness. I like, you know, like like long dresses, for example, if I look at it from a male perspective, right? I like to me, sexiness is like great marketing. When you look at the package, you're like, oh my God, I wonder what's underneath that package. But you don't want to see what's underneath the package because the package itself is the exciting part. That to me is sexy. Oh, okay, Rachel. Now we know how we have to dress. Packaging. Long dress. I'll bring a long dress. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm such a fan. I'm a, such a fan of those film noir movies. Yeah, like, you know Greta Gable. You know all, all these. I just love. I love that period. I think that's classy and sexy. Mm. Ah, best advice you've ever been given. Um, let me see. Uh, get over it and get on with it. Probably is the best one I've gotten so far. Uh, you know, because I, I would complain about something, and my friend would go, "You gonna do what?" I said, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to do what? Yeah, you're going to get over it and get on with it. And I learned that, you know what I mean? You can you can wallow or you can just get over it and get on with it. Mm, love it. Love it. Any Moment. advice you wish you had been given? I think I wish I would have been, I wish somebody would have told me like, you know, dude, it's okay to make mistakes when you're, you know, you're, you're, you're 18 and you're early 20s, just make the mistakes and don't beat yourself over the head with it. Uh, I'll, I'll share a side note. Uh, when I turned 50, I gave myself the greatest gift and that is the gift of forgiveness. And here's what I said to myself from not from, th- from this moment forward, as, you know, when you, you know how you have that mind chatter messes with you sometimes. And then you start pulling stuff from the past. So what I decided that day was anything that happened before 50, I can't bring up or let my mind allow to chatter. So when something comes up, I go, remember the last time I go, whoa, 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 that was before you were 50. doesn't count anymore. (laughs) And it's amazing how the noise just kind of went down in my head. I can't. So, you know, it's okay to make mistakes, man. I love it. it. I love it. It has been so awesome having you on our show. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you guys. You guys are awesome. I look forward to seeing you at Outbound, truly. Likewise. And at Outbound, I'll make you tell me the John Cougar Mellencamp story. Yes. We'll, it we'll, is so funny. It is so Okay. Yeah. That'll be like, oh, maybe we'll get some backstage footage and we'll use yeah. it for another show. It'll be so, cool. It'll be cool. It'll so be once cool. again, thanks to Victor and Tony. Thank you, Warners, for listening to this episode of The Women Your Mother Warned You About, sponsored by Sales Gravy. Hey, you need some good sales training? Go check out Sales Gravy University. And uh, if you like the show, share it. I mean, it's Victor Antonio. Why wouldn't you share it? And we can always use another great rating. I'm Gina Tremarco with Sales Gravy. And so is Rachel, come to think of it. <laughs> you can find me everywhere as the singing lender. And you can find everything you need to know about us at womenyourmotherwarnsyouabout.com. All right, we're out. Bye, Warners. This really will get serious soon. Yeah, I don't. Think- 
It, it doesn't have to. I don't think anybody wants it to be serious. You don't think... I had to burp the whole time. 